Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. My name is Jessica Sweeney. And I'm Sam Hatfield, and this is the Collegium Institute podcast. The Collegium Institute is a vibrant intellectual community which draws together students and faculty within our university here at Penn to engage both the Catholic intellectual tradition and large existential questions such as what is the good life and why does beauty matter? As a part of this endeavor, we have the privilege of speaking to a variety of people, from economists to scholars, of religious and classical studies, to historians. And today we have the honor of being joined by Mr. Makoto Fujimura, renowned artist, writer, and speaker. Mr. Fujimura is known around the world for his magnificent works of art, which meld an ancient Japanese form, Nihanga, with abstract expressionism. Along with his artistic work, he is also the director of Fuller's Brem Center, was a presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009, and was awarded the 2014 Religion and Arts Award by the American Academy of Religion. Perhaps most importantly, Mr. Fujimura founded the International Arts Movement in 1992 and the Fujimura Institute in 2011, which together are a part of a catalytic movement that is reframing how we speak of and nurture a new type of cultural conversation and helping to infuse culture with a rehumanized microcosm of art, love, and beauty. I hope we can hear more about your work in those areas in our conversation today, but now to begin. Thank you so much for being here with us. We really are honored to get to spend this time in conversation with you. I'm delighted as well. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. So I thought a good way to start might be to hear a little bit about kind of your story, maybe how you began your life as an artist. I was curious if it was something that you were drawn to as a child or kind of where it began. So So my mother just passed away a month ago and she has kept a painting that I did when I was two. (laughs) framed it and gave it to me when I graduated from college and uh, I still have it and it was done in Sweden I was born in Boston but Mm. uh, my father is a scientist and we were in Sweden for a very short time before moving to Japan But when you look at the painting, it has kind of my gestures, you know, the same kind of colors and I think there's, there's a bit of humor there and also a sign of nurture you know, my mother, my parents were both very encouraging about my gifts. And mm. I think the fact that she kept that painting shows she saw something something in me. And I think later on, when I grew into my calling, I think she did not find that very surprising. And mm. I think she saw something that her family has a lineage of artists in Japan, Mm. a playwright, well-known painter, as well as a Presbyterian 
evangelist. <laughs> wow. yeah, this was a complete surprise. <laughs> I didn't find out until I was being ordained right. as an elder in a Presbyterian church. Wow. Um, and so I think I grew up under this environment of nurture and encouragement, which is a lot more important than people think uh, when mm-hmm. you think about gift of arts or music or this kind of a generation of blessing there. Hmm, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like there's a sort of sense in which from the time you were young, there was this sort of this fostering kind of this culture care that you you've talked yeah, about. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. As I, you know, you don't think much about a person's holistic legacy until that person's gone. And, right. and, and although I, I've always acknowledged my mother and, you know, my parents' hmm. encouragement, but until she passed away and as I reflect on her life and you know how that's influenced me and my children right. I, I think it became very evident that there was there was this kind of a undeniable peace that she had always made it a natural thing for hmm. me to paint or to make things <laughs> and uh, right. that I've never thought that that was anything special you know that, hmm. was, that I thought everybody had this you know until I went to middle school you know right. <laughs> <laughs> the world doesn't work like that you know yeah. people are go home and hmm. hear your father playing the quartet so you know like, like your, your <laughs> table is full of art and but that was that was my home hmm. wow that's <laughs> wonderful so I guess maybe to kind of jump a little bit, but kind of stay with the influence of art in your life. I was wondering, this maybe ties into a little bit of something that Sam and I were wondering about too, yeah. whether you came to art before God or, or whether God came before the, mm-hmm. your relation mm-hmm. to art and your experience as an artist is preparing you for a life searching for God and kind of, you know, pursuing yes. God. Yes. Well, it's a great question and I have multiple answers to that, <laughs> but really it, it is, as the theologians call prevenient grace. I mean, it, it, it's everything, when you think you figured it out, right, how you came to know God in some level, first you think it's it's your work to look like you you were curious and you, mm-hmm. you did all the work, you know, you <laughs> read the Bible and, you know, but then as you understand faith, it's kind of the reverse, you know, it was a God was seeking after you and, and it was Christ's voice that you heard and responded and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so you grow into this understanding, even as an individual of how there were everything, environment, everything was set up mm-hmm. toward your faith. And the faith is ultimately this gift that you can't earn or you can't, you know, really create. And then you think about the generational piece, right? There's like multi-generational in my family, especially on my mother's side, of Christians who Mm -hmm. must have prayed for me, you know, that that generational blessing of prayer that is transcending all of my individual decisions, you know, (laughs) And, and then the cultural reality, right? So... You know, I'll talk more about silence and beauty, Japanese history tonight. But right. it really is when you think about what happened to Japan and the history of Japan and and how, you know, my father's leading scientists moved to U.S., brought <laughs> my brother and I to U.S. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, you have this complex identity of we basically immigrants, right. you know, finding exile from both cultures in a way, and, mm-hmm. and yet then this element of faith in my life have become so much amplified. 
because mm-hmm. of that and, and my identity as an artist. And so it's like the chicken and egg question, you know, what, did my faith come first and my art? And, and the, really the answer, you know, is yes and yes, because it's, it's, it's no matter where you look at, these faith paths have opened up. Even when I was, you know, I used to be painting or making something and I, I used to feel this power flow through me and I didn't know what to call that. I, I thought, again, everybody had this and, you know, it's such a feeling of belonging and feeling like I'm doing something that I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. And then as I grew older, I recall that part of art or making and as you grow older, you become kind of cynical you know, <laughs> right. about the world and you, you somehow taught this and you, you, you know, people tell you, well, you're all alone in the world. You know, you, you're not quite sure what you can communicate mm-hmm. with anybody. You know, you're not quite sure if this blue that I'm looking at is the same blue that you're looking at. Like, there's no philosophical linkage if you live in a world of, you know, kind of a materialist universe. Sure. And, and you can't really bridge that philosophically. And so you go into this life full of fragmentations and discrepancies that you can't reconcile. And so art for me at that point became an antidote to fragmentation. But then where did that come from? <laughs> right? okay. So so to me, I've always felt I was called to be an artist and God has gifted me and how I found out about my rational side of faith was very much tracing the intuitive, mm-hmm. that there was this reality of intuitive knowledge that, you know, Jack Maritain talks mm-hmm. about right. um, so significantly for me. You know, his conversation with George Rolt is very important because it is philosophy and theology with the art. And mm-hmm. in that case, art came first. Right. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think that might be where I land right now is, is that I, I, I think it was through art that I discovered certain things about the universe that I couldn't explain away in post-enlightenment <laughs> kind of way. And, and then that was a trigger through which I, I was able to discover the world of faith. And, and yet, I, it was God, the artist, right, calling me all along. <laughs> so... There's no question that the lineage, the ontology of this is right. goes way back to God, mm-hmm. whose main identity, I claim, is the only artist that is mm-hmm. able to create out of nothing, you know, mm-hmm. create in the, in the truest sense of that word. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's powerful, such powerful ideas. Yeah. And yeah. my mother is a big fan of yours, and she wanted to ask a question sure, of you sure, and she it. had yeah. a very interesting one that I was also curious about yeah. about this the way that you came to find God through Christianity mm-hmm. through your wife mm-hmm. which you talked about in your book Silence yeah. and Beauty yeah. Yeah. she wanted to know if there was a certain big moment or if it was a gradual realization yeah. and at the same time she also wanted to ask if faith to you was more of a private thing that you expressed through your art Mm -hmm. or is it a collective practice with a congregation or a community that you feel where you feel at home or is it maybe a mix of the two yeah judy had a lot to do with my initial stages because she grew up catholic and 
her uncle was a priest. And But when we were in Japan, she was going through kind of a spiritual crisis and going to a missionary church, which is Protestant mm-hmm. church. And unfortunately, she, she recently left the marriage about three years ago due to a lot of factors. It wasn't your typical divorce where, you know, where... Uh, couples fighting or whatever mm-hmm. it was it was a situation where trauma mm-hmm. and pain caught up to her in a very unique way but i still think of that journey right of early days and of our struggle to raise our children in ground zero mm-hmm. in new york city and all that sacrifices that's been given as critical to everything that I do. You know, I wrote two books, Culture Care and Science and Beauty, both kind of dedicated to this journey. One for certainly because, you know, it was her journey as a psychotherapist and partly my thought about integrating culture and nature and art mm-hmm. came out of my conversations with her and also being Japanese, uh, Japanese culture is critical for that. And then silence and beauty became my, you know, journey into suffering and pain. Mm. And I think everything that I wrote in the silence and beauty book has become prophetic in the, my journey of brokenness and darkness and struggles have been part of the book already before mm-hmm. all this kind of unraveled. And so last few years has been a journey of rediscovering what all of that means. You know, what what is faith fundamental to my relationship and my marriage and when things break down and how the fragmentation and where's God in that, you know, like mm-hmm. like like in, in, in the struggles of what you can't explain. And these are the issues that I dealt with in my book, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately becomes a important chapter that I now see as almost necessary chapter where I can reconsider everything I wrote in Silence and Beauty, including my journey with Judy and including all of that has now been almost like amplified, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of importance in my life. Yeah, that makes me, I guess, think about just like, I guess, your art, right? And I think clearly from experiences I've had with friends and colleagues and then people Mm -hmm. I've heard of and things I've read online, right? It has had a clear effect on people Mm -hmm. really around the world. I think it's been most fascinating to hear about how the sort of, it's helped people heal to sort of find this sense of like renewal and peace and contentment. And I guess I'm wondering for you with your art, both the process of making it, but also seeing the final work, mm-hmm. do you think it helps you to explore those same things for yourself um, mm-hmm. in your own life, your own suffering, you know, mm-hmm. your traumas? Mm-hmm. Do you think that it has that effect on you as well? Like, are you, yeah, that I heard somewhere where you said that you're painting with Christ tears and I just, yeah. I don't know, just, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, it's interesting, right? When I did the uh, Four Holy Gospels in 2011, mm-hmm. I thought about, well, what is that? pinhole, you know, my expression of who I am and what I do as an artist. And it came down to Christ's tears, you know, John 11, 35, Jesus wept, and the shortest two, two words in the Bible. And 
I think even then I anticipated what was to come as well as we positioning or reconsidering what happened, you know, with 9-11. Next week is the 20th anniversary of Columbine High School. I will be there with the family to mm-hmm. share in, in their grief, but also this language to move forward. And that language has to come from culture. And American culture, unfortunately, doesn't have deep lament. It has victory and you know, <laughs> winning and success at all costs, wearing a mask to cover up your pain, you know. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really have a tradition at least of deep lament. So after 9-11, you know, there were only a few songs that radio could play. Morton Orson's Lux Turner kept on playing over and over again because they're There are only few American composers who were able to capture the death and and the loss, sense Mm. of grief, you know. Mm -hmm. And to that, you know, I think we have to, as artists and people of faith, respond in a new way because Columbine High School, this would be the last commemoration that parents will be doing. They, They need to move forward. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that similar things will happen after, you know, there's, there's going to be many 20th, 20th and 9-11, right. Virginia Tech, Amish shooting, Newtown, on and on. Right? How do we as a culture handle that and, and articulate something that really brings healing, but at the same time honoring what happened? And so it's interesting, <laughs> even in 2011, when I was doing the illuminations, I think I was intuiting what was to come. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was trying to capture what happened in the last 10 years. And it, it happens to prepare me <laughs> for what was happening now. You mm-hmm. know? And, and those kind of intuitive leaps, mm-hmm. grasping of something that you don't know yet rationally, but you know in terms of language of feelings, language of intuition, mm-hmm. those tend to be what I'm focused on as an artist. And, you know, and, and I'm constantly amazed how my intuition goes ahead of what I know. Mm-hmm. You focus on the idea of silence and mm-hmm. suffering mm-hmm. pensively throughout your book. Mm-hmm. And the silence of God is seen everywhere at all times throughout the world and probes many people to question their faith in God. Mm-hmm. You experienced this silence in observing the ground zeros of 9-11 yes. and Nagasaki when you went yeah. to Japan. My question is, how do we, as imperfect mm-hmm. humans created in the world of a perfect God, live with this seemingly amplified silence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think about that every day as I think about my life and my journey, certainly of traumas and darkness, but really, it's really about God. It's really about God's presence in our lives. Is is that presence enough for us to, you know, live another day? And my answer, although it vacillates depending on what time of the day you ask me, but my answer tends to be that not only it's an affirmative yes, but that without picture of God, reality of God in our lives, we wouldn't know how to ask the question (laughs) because the disorientation that we feel, even the injustice or even the anger, what 
is wrong, what makes us dehumanized. Those have an orientation toward a world in which those things are dealt with in, in the right way. Mm-hmm. That there is injustice and beauty and mercy, you know, that can not only restore, but it can also bring a new world. And there's just no other way to ask this question without, like the psalmist, crying out to God and being very honest, you know, as human beings. <laughs> really, you know, psalms are not only lamentations, it's like hip-hop, you know, it's, it's like this <laughs> brutal honesty, blunt honesty, just this kind of uh, anger and hatred and vitriol and all those yeah. things that we, we want to kind of hide from our churches often, you know, because it's not nice and, <laughs> you know, and yet it's all there. And I think that's part of our journey of dealing with the current crisis of fragmentation and, and the past traumas. You just answered a very difficult theological question, the mm-hmm. The theodicy, theodicy, I think, is what you call it in your yes, book. Yes. Uh, why do bad things happen yes, to good people? Yes. Why is there suffering yeah, on the planet? Yeah. I've had many yeah. of my own with uh, yes. with friends who yeah. want to question the faith. Right. And it's interesting what comes up when I try to answer the question and how difficult that right. can be. Yeah, But there's a good way. I mean, I think the way that you're thinking about it is very formative and pensive and understanding well, of not, this right. greater it's truth. It's not so much that we can provide answers. It's about asking honest questions. Mm-hmm. Who can we do that with, you know? And a lot of places, religion in general, has kind of a way to not ignore the question, but make it less than central, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? For Christianity, it is central. It, that question is absolutely a central question. And when you read the book of Job, and when you see how much questioning Job does, a righteous man who's been stricken of everything, And yet, when you read it, as Christians, we can't help but to see Jesus everywhere, Hmm. right? So so when God answers, in fact, his answer is not an answer, rational, kind of a propositional answer. It's a song, Hmm. uh, right? And so it's not an answer at all. It's it's about who are you to, you know, where were you when God created the world? And that's usually taken as something of a challenge to Joe, but but really isn't. It's it's about when you are in suffering and when you sing a song, it often comes out, it's about where are you, right? Where am I? Where are you, God? And so God, God is basically flipping the question and turning that into a song, mm-hmm. which, which is a very unusual <laughs> gesture, I think, you know, and when you look at best of the arts of 20th century or any time, but, you know, especially particularly in 20th century where, you know, there's increasing trauma from devastating realities of we have created weapons of mass destruction. We can blow ourselves up over and over in this existentialistic positioning of God is dead and therefore there's no hope. So we have to, we are the only answer, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we ask this question today, we, yes, we seek answers. But what we're really asking is for is, is, is a kind of presence that is not captured in certainly the academic discourse or the way to reason ourselves out of this. 
And so what Job teaches us is that God is not silent, as Endel said. God speaks through silence. And it's a song. It's a song that God is singing, but we can't hear it because we have basically a rationality has taken over and, <laughs> and our hearts are not open. But, you know, so I don't think it's about answering those mm. questions. They're, they're good questions. And I think every faithful Christian needs to ask them with those who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of this idea with what you were just saying, but then also the lack of language that maybe we have in American culture to sort of yeah. express lament and sorrow. It seems like I hadn't hadn't thought about this before you said this, but it seems like perhaps that might be part of why we're experiencing sort of such a culture of like despair. And, you know, there's talk of a mental health crisis and a sort of inability to really sort of, I don't know, yeah, this struggle with daily living. And I wonder if you think there are things that we're missing in our approach. And like you talk Mm -hmm. about the sort of being able to transform inward pain into outward beauty. And I'm wondering if there's something, yeah, even like through the arts or the fact that God sings to us, right? Mm-hmm. Sings to Job mm-hmm. and his suffering, mm-hmm. whether there's something there to, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, increasingly we're starting to realize that we've been trained in this way of understanding or learning that you, you know, you learn to know something the way to know is through information and information is by sitting across the classroom and then you know taking in what the professor is saying and you you kind of master it in a way to pass your exams and so forth but most of those have missed this reality of making so real knowledge is directly connected to love and love creates love is always generative Love cannot not create. So the ontology of creation and and the biblical picture of God is that God doesn't need any of this, right? Any of the world, any of us. And God doesn't need the church. God doesn't need the earth. God is all-sufficient and self-sufficient. So God created out of pure gratuity of love. So it's the opposite of how we perceive our purpose in being as this purposeful creation that is driven to fix the world. And that's that's not, to me, an accurate picture of God's presence, God's being as a creator, or that it doesn't adequately describe human endeavor <laughs> toward this city of God. The Bible is all about making, and, and this Creator God, created out of gratuity, out of love, in excess, in a way that doesn't make sense. Mm. And therefore, any kind of materialist argument toward the Darwinian presence, the Darwinian struggle to survive and to put mercy and beauty into that will ultimately fail. And any kind of way to understand the divine action, you know, of creation will fail because it's, mm. it's, it's just predicated upon purposeful need to survive. Hmm. And and so the whole mindset is is not what the Bible begins with. Hmm. And we have fallen into, as a church, arguing with those who have pulled us into that domain of utility and utilitarian pragmatism. Hmm. But we have to kind of skip out of it. And part of it, that's a long way to answer your question, but the part of it is that we have to go back 
to this reality of making as a premise of God's being mm. and then our being <laughs> that we don't know anything until we make. Mm. And so the gap between information, let's say the recipe, and what you make, you know, what you create, what you cook, <laughs> what you serve, it's huge, right? It doesn't matter how much, you know, you study online. You know, watch the YouTube of Jack Papa making an omelet over and over. It doesn't seem to work, you know, in terms of actual making the omelet. Hmm. So what is that gap between recipe and reality? And that's the crisis of education hmm. right there is, is, is that you don't, we haven't figured this out. Hmm. So we have all these means to for knowledge and surely we have advanced our knowledge base. But how much of it is, is really about making and ultimately, most importantly, connected to love. Hmm. That's not something that we talk about in classrooms. We don't touch that. So this is where I think theology can really reignite something that postmodern reality, especially in the academia, has fallen prey to. It's this trap of thinking that we know something. And for certain, this kind of uh, obsession or idol we created out of certainty that we know this because there's data in front of us. Uh, my father is a research scientist. At the end of his days, he was a world's leading acoustics scientist, but he always had this humble approach to his research that no matter how AI and how advanced computers become, we cannot even come close to human speech. <laughs> Whereas his colleagues will assume that Machines can perfectly imitate human voice. And, you know, early 70s at Bell Labs, where he began his research or he continued his research, scientists were convinced in 10 years they will have a machine that would speak human speech perfectly. Right. And here we are in 2019. <laughs> and we have Alexa. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so he was right. And I think that gap is, is something of a huge, you know, blind spot in, mm -hmm. in our modern education. <laughs> Besides expounding into the deficiencies of the modern education system, that served very well as a self-plug for your new work on the theology of creation. Yeah, so yeah, thank yeah. you for that and yeah, also for the listeners point, well, yeah. um, of your future work <laughs> yeah, that we'll get yeah, into in a yeah, bit. Yeah, but yeah. there's an idea that comes forth from what you've said about bringing, you know, the, the idea of creation is bringing something from the internal to the external and yeah. that the process by which that happens is love, you know, God being self-sufficient and fully yeah. of himself, taking what is inside God and making it external and the universe coming into creation out of love. So I think that, you know, some people may say, but do there exist struggles inside of ourselves that should never be brought forth into art, literature, a creative passion, yeah. whatever, yeah. but should yeah. be held within to reflect upon in one's own, you know, mind and soul. Yeah. You know, absolutely. There's limits. There's limits. And we have to honor those limits. Now, the reality is when we talk about making, we also can make a bomb. We can, we can destroy the world. We can make a virus. We can do all sorts of things that today that was unthinkable. So it's not so much about this unbridled sense of ability to create, but again, it goes back to what love is, you know, love in all aspects of that word with 
agape to filion, and there's all sorts of depths to how we can understand uh, limitations and ethics and in terms of creating the future, right? We can literally make the future through what we imagine today. And that's good, but that's also dangerous. So where are the boundaries and how do we set those boundaries? And those things, I think, are the work of you know, your generation that is going to have to find ways to place imagination, human imagination and desires of our hearts into a language that is predicated on hope but has a grasp on reality, you know, the larger sense of reality, you know, the capital R, that we have responsibility to steward, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and ultimately, the good news is that we cannot be God. I mean, it's just simply not, by definition, impossible. And we may think that, and we may create idols out of something that we or we, we have created. But theologically, that is an impossibility. And so that's, that's the ultimate limitation, is, mm -hmm. is that, you know, that actually creates boundaries around even asking the question. Mm -hmm. you know? And God is in control. God is good. God is love. And, and what God started, God will finish. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an invitation to all that is exiled, that is all, all that doesn't fit into how we consider to be key cogs of wheel of Darwinian struggle mm -hmm. that is now central. So, so the arts, culture, philosophy, all, all these areas has been discarded <laughs> in recent times. I, I, I believe we'll have to come back because, <laughs> you know, we will so lose our humanity. And of course, you know, people are afraid of that and people warn us against that. But again, God is in control. <laughs> God is in control. God is at the center. Yet in your book, you talk about Christ holding the center of the Christian mm -hmm. faith. Yet Christ is the one that guides us into the storms of life. Yes. Explain yourself, sir. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. So Christ is the shepherd. It's at the heart of the pen. <laughs> and yet Christ takes the sheep outside. The role of a shepherd, his main role would be to take the sheep outside. <laughs> But shepherds today in churches do not take the sheep outside. <laughs> they erect, you know, higher and higher walls, try to keep the sheep inside, control the sheep as much as possible and bring the grass in so that the sheep don't starve. And that has caused the church, Protestant Catholic, and I don't know about all the rock churches, I have friends there, but that has limited the potential of how Christianity of faith can break open a new world, uh, mm -hmm. right? that this adventure of being able to, this missional journey that we can be on toward the margins. You don't want to be alone in the outer margins, but Jesus has told us that, you know, go in twos, but he has also promised that if you ever get lost, you will come and get you know, the lost sheep. And so all that to say, you know, that it's osmosis at work, you know, it's, it's kind of this both end. And it's the tribal realities of sheep inside a pen, you know, safe, 
from the wolves and the winds. It's for this purposefulness of the good shepherd taking the sheep outside. <laughs> and so that kind of journey into the world and back, in a way, is a kind of a rhythm, you know. It's a liturgical rhythm, I think, it's, it's, <laughs> it's that we, we often don't think about. You know, we think of the church as a church building. You go in Sunday, and that's a church. Well, the church visible and church invisible, you know, is both present in the world. And we are to reach into what you can't see. <laughs> and, but oftentimes we don't do that. We are afraid because they're wolves and they're, the wind is strong. <laughs> and you might get lost. <laughs> and, and yet those are things that Jesus anticipated. <laughs> and so it's all there. And yet, you know, the way we approach it tend to be very industrial, first of all, this idea of success, church planting as a success model. What, <laughs> what you know, what's the bottom line? You have to have a building, you have to have people, you have to have 200 people to sustain. And those those questions seems to me <laughs> is approaching from an industrial mindset <laughs> rather than a holistic sociological reality. And so I think about, you know, how we might begin to think about the church as, a, as God's artwork, that this is jazz, this is modern dance, this is hip-hop, <laughs> this is something that moves, you know, and responds to the outer world. Mm -hmm. And yet it creates boundaries at the same time by coming back and then reordering of our lives and, and then making some sense out of it and then going back again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a question about your art and your process, but mm -hmm. I also want to maybe flag just towards the end, maybe coming back to this question mm -hmm. of how do we as how do we as Christians sort of as sheep not just stay safe within the pen, but actually go out? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you see your work with the different institutes yeah. you're involved with doing that. But maybe before we, we talk about that, I guess I'm wondering just where inspiration comes for your art. Like where you find mm -hmm. how you get your mm -hmm. ideas. Because I think yeah. your art, the first time I encountered it was when I was a teacher. And I don't know, it struck me as being these sort of like pools that you can just sort of dive into. <laughs> and yeah. um, you sort of sink into them and they kind of... Uh -huh. I don't know, you have all these like, sort of mental reverberations and you have all these like, memories and ideas and emotions that sort of yeah, surface yeah, um, just yeah. by, you know, standing before it. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering sort of how you approach new pieces or how you sort of... Yeah, you know, you know it's, it's interesting because you think as an artist, you understand what you're doing. And, and I really don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do understand it. You know, probably 20 years ago, I would answer that question definitely. Like, I actually, you know, have a, this inspiration, Endo and uh, Kalbata, you know, and William Blake, and, you know, how, how all of that relate to my work and right. series that I've done. And it's not that I, I don't have things to talk about, but it's really the mystery of creation. I, I'm just taken by how much hmm. as, as, I was painting in my studio in Pasadena and one of my fellows was watching me here. She was helping me and she noticed something about the materials and how amazing this hundred year old Sumi ink is reacting to hmm. the Belgian linen, you know? And she said, so did you know that was going to happen? And I said, no, <laughs> I knew that something would happen right. and I have limited the materials and how I put materials on the canvas. Hmm. But I didn't know. 
and this is, this is amazing. You know, like, this is like we're like watching it, like, you know, children, you know, like watching <laughs> a sunset. You know, it's just like, how could this be? You know, how could this happen in this way, in this particular time, and with these material? When I have done this hundreds of times, <laughs> same thing over and over, but this is different. This is new creation. <laughs> this is a new discovery. And that never stops for me, this <laughs> wonderment about very simple materials, right, that, that I've used over and over again. And I, I'm supposed to know, right? I'm supposed yeah. to master this. <laughs> but the fact is I haven't and I don't want to. I, I want the materials to speak to me with this ongoing sense of God's, you know, creative self being embedded in these materials, showing an artist that there's so much more that you can discover. And so the inspiration, I think, is in front of you. Hmm. You know, it's what happens when you start with an idea, certainly, when you start with limiting yourself, certainly. You start with trying to, rather than self-express, capture this reality of songs that God is singing, mm -hmm. angels are singing, you know, and musical spheres, that there's margins of illuminated, you know, manuscripts captured mm -hmm. in, in life, the, the, the invisible realms that is operating constantly all around us, but we're kind of, you know, became these kind of machine-like, animal-like beings that cannot respond to those things. And when art breaks in, it captures something of the mystery of that reality that is happening. You know, the, the burning bushes everywhere. <laughs> Calvin Silver, the theologian, said, you know, we, we just stopped sh taking our shoes off. You know, <laughs> like, like the mystery is gone and, and we don't treat it as sacred. So... Reality doesn't respond in a way, and yet every child knows that there's that mystery alive until somebody tells that child, you know, grow up and <laughs> be beautiful. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so inspiration is like returning to that innocence from the perspective experience, right? It's not reversal, or, you know, it's not like being a child again, <laughs> and yet you have the eye of faith that can open up even more with faith, see the world full of burning bushes and, <laughs> and just you just stop, you know, you just have to have this ability to behold. <laughs> and that's your inspiration. So I mean there's no end to this. I, I have a thousand things I want to do that I don't have time to do on this side of eternity. <laughs> And it's because the mystery is alive in the materials, you know, I use. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I paint on the side, so it's not yeah. my job. But yeah, this idea of the sort of the mystery and uncertainty even of the materials yeah. themselves, yeah. right? That kind of each time it's sort of a new. Mm -hmm. And some of yeah. what you said reminded me of Antony Gaudi's architecture. Yes. Just like the sort of he's yes. beholding creation, the kind yes. of wonderment all around. Oh, totally. And then. Yeah. It feeds his yeah. his work. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's right. Yeah. In the Collegium Institute, we have these wonderful food for thought sessions, and right now we're reading a book by Elaine Scarry, uh, oh. by Elaine Scarry called "On Beauty and Being Just." Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, and so we're, we're we're getting into it. But it seemed you resonated with this idea that an encounter with beauty brings us out of ourselves, that's right. and kind of develops our capacity for exploration or wonder that you know. Yeah 
comes into this idea of what is the transcendent. So yeah. how do you see yourself yeah. as an artist, an intellectual, an observer of the world, yeah. specifically as you travel the globe and visit all these yeah. foreign places yeah. and have studios yeah. and you know galleries and showings all around the country? Yeah. And how, how do you see yourself? Yeah, so Eden Scary's you know, work is very important to me. I, I, I use her book on beauty and being just, you know, whenever I have mentoring sessions or whatever among artists. And I think increasingly I'm beginning to think that what she tapped into, even though she's not particularly drawn to theology or how God intervenes in that process, but she gave us a language that as a bridge to a world that doesn't believe in beauty anymore, right? Mm. Maybe increasingly different because of the international influence. But at least in New York in 90s, you know, beauty was completely a taboo. And I think it was in 2001 or two, we organized a conference at the Return of Beauty at hmm. NYU and invited Dr. Scary to hmm. speak. Hmm. And she told me that, you know, it was kind of liberating to speak about her book in a context of metaphysical acknowledgement. Hmm. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was very happy about that, you know, that, that yeah. actually, whether she's a believer or not, it really doesn't matter. She felt this freedom rather than constraint. And she, she felt like she was allowed to talk about the mystery of what she was discovering through, mostly through literature and her encounter with Matisse and all those realities that she talks about in the book. So I carry that with me wherever I go. I first see myself as an artist and I need to locate myself no matter where I am in terms of my creative direction. So even if I'm away from the studio, I'm constantly checking in to my place of making <laughs> and the questions that poses for me and kind of this intuitive language that I've developed over the years. So I go back, no matter where I am, to that place as I speak to people, as <laughs> I journey. And this question of link between beauty and justice is one of the most profound questions that one can ask in the world today because that is first of all the western mind has rejected beauty so it's now rediscovering beauty and asking what is beauty <laughs> the eastern world has always embraced beauty but has not understood justice so it's 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 an ideal way to look at east and west and to say what Dr. Scary, I mean, she, she's coming from her appreciation of Eastern cultures in that book in particular, you know, <laughs> and she told me that, you know, she reads Tale of Genji, you know, <laughs> before bed every night. And, and that kind of, I understand that. Right? And, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense because your book feels like that. It's, it's <laughs> a place of continuum between Western thinking and Eastern and how we have positive in such strict terms in contemporary academia that beauty has been exiled and and she courageously kind of said things that it's taboo to right. to a lot of her contemporaries and that book became an underground bestseller in new york among artists and intellectuals <laughs> because everybody's asking this question in the 90s like what 
why, why have we done this? You know, <laughs> like what have we done to beauty? So Return on Beauty conference at NYU was, I think, very significant. And I, I think that conversation still resonates with me when I go to places and when <laughs> I continue to think about this. But increasingly, I think the tensions around the world, global conflicts and, and the dissonance that we're experiencing begs the question, like, if you don't have beauty, you may not have justice. Hmm. And that is a question that directly, I suppose, challenges U.S.'s role in the world, mm. right? America, that the Chinese call the beautiful country. Hmm. <laughs> are we really indeed beautiful? Hmm. Or are we this brute force of military power? Right. How are we leading, right? And, and the same thing in different countries, you know, if you affirm beauty, then where's justice? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we value each individual? As Dr. Scare does in the book, which kind of neglects the historical Christian view of Imago Dei, right? And yet she captures it through the other way, through nature, through understanding of the experience of encounter with beauty that forces us to admit our errors, she says, yeah, right. which, is, which is a beautiful line that mm-hmm. Christians should have wrote that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you're somebody who's immersed in thinking about literature and idea of beauty that poetically captures something that's very profound. And I, I'm so grateful for that book because mm-hmm. that, you know, that gives me hope that I can have a conversation in the highest realm of academia, in the West or East, and, and talk about what, what really matters, you know, <laughs> what can reshape the future. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe as we come to a close here, yeah. I wanted to ask you if you could just share a little bit about the work you do outside of specifically being a sort yeah. of practicing artist, but with the different institutes that you're mm-hmm. a part of mm-hmm. and kind of how that mm-hmm. Yeah, so that. so to me, everything flows out of my studio. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while I'm painting, students kind of show up and <laughs> they want to hang out. So, you know, I, I have them help me and, and and then we talk about things. And, and that, that has become, you know, when my father passed away, you know, I wanted to honor him in some way. And at the, at the time of creation of Fujimori Institute, he was still living. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to capture his kind of humidity into inquiry into scientific truth and and he was not a believer so it was important for me to do it in, in a language that he would embrace and mm-hmm. understand and cultural care is certainly part of that and my brother who is a silicon valley entrepreneur who's now founded a company on deep learning mm-hmm. it's kind of continuing to be an inspiration for me but all of these things are connected to what happens in the studio and then whatever spins out i tend to have this (laughs) generative mind i guess that's a gift of my father Hmm. into my life that you're always not only creating but you're thinking about you're trying to think about how others may respond to generative way of living and <laughs> and so this idea of generosity and idea of creating genesis moments um, and uh, those are things that I, I think I want to respond to my father's you know way he was and and so oftentimes these things you know would 
creating a for-profit company called Culture Care Creative that is really a result of me having these conversations with young people and young people coming up with ideas and mm -hmm. they're often creating music or art or liturgy or whatever. And the problem is in the world that's driven by market system, whether it be galleries or record labels, often those margins are erased, right? Mm -hmm. So so you don't have a place if you don't fit into a category or purpose-driven reality of how churches are set up or whatever. And the marketplace dictates rather dehumanized form mm -hmm. of how we articulate our totality as human beings, especially as Christians. So I managed to carve my career, entire career, out of this impossibility mm. of articulating your faith, especially in the extravagance of God, in the marketplace. Mm. And I've done it, I think, with a way that other people can gain in some way. You know, it's not going to be exactly the same, but I think I've learned a few things that I can help people. So, you know, I, I end up mentoring a lot of students. I, I try to, again, be centered in the studio practice because otherwise, you know, I, I can get lost in mm -hmm. all sorts of other things, you know, and right. accidentally produce several movies. And, you know, like, yeah. what am I doing? Like, producing music and <laughs> movies. But but that's, that's kind of, the, you know, this generativity of God is you end up doing things that is expansive and mm -hmm. generative and you, you don't necessarily, you can't contain it because it's just the nature of the Holy Spirit working in the world. Mm -hmm. And you learn so much from that process. So it's not so much that, you know, the Institute and this Culture Creative is providing service, or, but it's really about, my kind of selfish <laughs> way of wanting to learn, you know, mm -hmm. wanting to constantly be listening post and asking these questions with young people, especially that generation that I think has enormous potential to provide healing, to provide culture care into the world, mm -hmm. to, to have a different language to talk about culture rather than fighting culture wars that tend to the garden of mm -hmm. culture and make it slow and slow down and raise your own vegetables, you know. <laughs> that kind of ethos is, is very much connected to the Japanese culture of old that, mm -hmm. that has integrated culture and nature in, in such seamless ways and created beauty out of it. And so, so much of my um, concern about for the generally next generation beyond, you know, it's so important not to give up and give in to the pragmatism of our days and just think in terms of limited resource environments and, and you know, how you have to fight your way out into it mm -hmm. and resume build and impress people. You know, when, when I see at the top of the heap, right, in New York City, at the highest realm of culture, that is just so empty. That doesn't have any power, especially today. And so what's going to stick? What's going to be the antidote to living our lives as generative human beings, caring, empathetic, and yet finding sustainable way of generative living? Mm -hmm. And how do you raise your family in a city where, you know, it's so Darwinian and so 
stroganoff. You know, these are things that I think art can connect and provide and model.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I envision like every institution, whether it be educational or the church, becoming a makerspace again. You know,、mm-hmm. it, it becomes in some way reflecting of this generative place that. Artists can bring into the world because the margins have enlarged,、mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are shrinking in our limited resource kind of mindset naturally. Because you know, when you fight the culture wars, you, you you're shrinking the territory by demonizing the other side,、mm-hmm. and, and it shrinks and shrinks, and there's nothing left almost.、Mm-hmm. But the margins are increasing, and that gives me hope、mm-hmm. because that's. The place to play. It's also dangerous, you know. Like we talked about in Jonathan, it's also dangerous. It is a lot of wolves,、mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think I find that younger generation can, if you train them and train, you know, yourself actually, and experience with the good shepherd, who you know is already present in that. The Holy Spirit is active and alive in cultures at large, and and so those those are things that I. Wow! Well, thank you. I think that's thank、uh, you so、much. an amazing place to end. And actually, yeah,、exactly. I, well, the funny thing was that my last question to you was going to be, "What advice do you have to artists, and、yeah. also more broadly to everyone how to sort of tend the cultural garden?" But I yeah, think yeah, listeners should just、good. go back and listen to the last part again because、yeah. I think you really yeah. just yeah. really hit it there. You wrapped it、um, up with a bow. That、so. was impressive.、Uh, <laughs> we no, we wanted to thank you so much from the Collegium Institute、oh, uh, and, so and for、fun. coming、thank、to Penn、you. and being able to speak、yeah. with us about this. Thank you so much for your time、Absolutely. and for your wisdom.、Yeah. I think the people. People that listening will really、yeah. be grateful for、yeah. what they've heard. You've been listening to the Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes, and to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.